All right, so you know we've been studying the gospel uh, this semester um, and looking at <clears throat> the centrality of the gospel, and we know that it's, it's of first importance, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. You guys have, have been nailing that one. So it's of first importance to Paul, and it should be of first importance to all of us. It's the foundation for the Christian life. It's how we come to know God. Um, it's the message that we share with unbelievers so they can come to know God. Um, everything is, is built upon our understanding of the gospel. And so we've said that there are really four kind of major categories, major themes that we need to be thinking about when it comes to the gospel. Uh, what are they? Number one, God. We need to know about God. Second is man. Third is Christ. Yep. And the fourth is response. And we'll talk about that fourth one today, the response. So yes, those are, the, those are those themes that kind of everything else hangs underneath. So we begin with God. Why do we need to know about God first? What would you say? Why do we start there? Okay, yeah, we need to know who created us, right? And, where we've, and, and what's happened as a result of that, yep. Yeah, so it's, the Bible starts with God, right? And his self-existence. He's always existed. What do we need to know about him? Yeah, that he's sovereign. What does that mean? He has dominion over all things. What else do we need to know about him? He's just, right? He's righteous, and, and that's excellent. What else do we need to know about him? How did this all get here? He made it. Right? So he owns it all. It's all, he is the self existent one, and he is the one that brought all of this into being. This whole world, you and I, everything is his creation. He is the creator. You could almost say that that's, that's the fundamental thing about God, so to speak, and the rest of the Bible just kind of elaborates the significance of that. He's created us, we belong to him, we are accountable to him. This whole world, all the universe, all there is, is accountable to the Creator God. And not, he's not just the Creator, but what do we see in Genesis 1? What kind of Creator is He? He's a good Creator, yeah. Everything He creates is good because it reflects His goodness. And I think the goodness is that, that broader attribute of God that leads to both His justice, right? So if He's good, He has to, he has to punish sin, but it also leads to His Abundant mercy. Um, and we, we mapped that out weeks ago now at this point um, when we were looking at God. That he's the creator. We're accountable to him. So we need to know about him. We also need to know about man. So what do we need to know about ourselves? What's that? We are fallen. And that's the second thing we need to know about ourselves. What's the first thing we need to know about ourselves? We are created in his image. Why is that significant? It does. It sets the standard for how far we've fallen. So it's not just that we've fallen, but that we are in His image, and here it is. We have a purpose. Human beings were created for a glorious purpose. Right? It, to, to image God. We are in His image to have dominion on God's behalf over this world to exercise God's reign and rule. So we talked about that. We won't, we're not going to hammer that out. But we need to know what our, 
what our original mission was, is, as human beings. And we also need to know, like we said, that we've fallen from that. We have rebelled, not just sort of stumbled. We have actively rebelled against God's intended purpose for human beings. We're in rebellion against Him. So we took a few weeks and we we mapped that out to see what that rebellion looks like, what's the state of our hearts, and what, what are some of those things that we saw? Is there any part of us that's free from sin? No. Everything. Our thinking, we're deceived, we're idolatrous. Uh, we think up is down and down is up in terms, of our, in terms of morality. We're all backwards and bent up. Even though we have consciences and we know that there's things that are wrong, we have tried to be the ones that determine what good and evil is, and we've made a mess of everything. Right? Because we're totally depraved. Every, every part of us is tainted by sin, corrupted by sin. Ephesians says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. So we've, we've looked at that. We need to know the glory of humanity, the purpose, who, what we were created to be, and then the, the devastation of humanity. Um, and both of those, the, the, the Bible helps us, helps us hold both of those in tension. And so for the last several weeks, we focused on Christ, who He is, and what He's accomplished for us. So we've been looking at these sort of what we've called gospel events. What, how, how could you summarize it? What are some of those gospel events that we've looked at? The life of Jesus. What else? Not rocket science, come on. The death of Jesus. What else? The resurrection of Jesus. And we grouped some other things with resurrection. What else do we group with resurrection? The ascension, yep. We could tag one more on there, the giving of the Spirit in Acts 2. But yeah, resurrection, ascension. And then the fourth event is his return. Yeah, it's his return to earth. So you see these things described and elaborated and explained in, in the, the Gospels and in the, in the New Testament epistles. The life, the death, the resurrection, ascension, and the return of, of Jesus. So let's take each of those, just review what is significant about his life? I'm trying to crystallize this for us because I threw a lot at you over these last few weeks, okay? What is significant about his life? What do we need to know? What must we know about his life? Okay, so he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the, the prophecies, yes. What's the sinless? Okay, what's the significance of the sinlessness, fulfilling of the law, all those things? Yes. He was the obedient son, the obedient covenant partner that man was intended to be, that we failed to be. We could never recover. So Christ came as king, as that obedient son in the line of of Eve, as God himself, so the God-man, Jesus, came to be that obedient son. And his obedience of the law, his sinlessness, um, some of those things were the evidence that he fulfilled that obedient work. So if you, if you can boil it down, we would say the significance of his life is that he was the perfectly obedient son, obeying when we've all failed, and thus he earned the righteousness that we do not have. Okay? That's the significance of his life. He earned the righteousness that we do not have as the obedient son. Now, what is significant about his death? If you can boil it down. Take a stab at it. 
Yes, amen. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He died as our substitute. So he, not only did He earn the righteousness in His life, but He died as the substitute for sinners. He took our place, Isaiah 53. He bore the wrath of God. He was punished for our sins when we should have been. The guilty for the unguilty, then the not guilty. The substitute happened there. And uh, here's a bonus question. Okay? Extra credit. Do you remember any of the ways that the Gospels show us that this is the case? In the, in the passion story. This just shows that I just overloaded you guys. Okay? Yep. What what does that show us? What were all those? What was the significance of all those statements of his innocence? Think Old Testament. What did you say? It was predicted in Isaiah. Yeah. It was. It shows that it was the fulfillment of the Isaiahic servant in Isaiah fifty three. Yeah. Because there he was described as as innocent. He was not guilty in Isaiah fifty three. In in the passion narrative, it draws that out. He was innocent, 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 innocent. So it shows that he is that coming one that Isaiah predicted. Yeah. And you remember anything else? Remember anything that happened at the crucifixion? Okay, yeah, he had to suffer before being exalted, which is, is what Isaiah predicted as well. Yep. Okay, what about the veil being torn? That's right. Yeah, he's opening the presence of God. He's, 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 he's ripping the veil, meaning his death has secured for us access back to the presence of God. And we noted that the veil, sort of been common knowledge, but the veil had the cherubim woven into it. And the veil of, that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of it was evocative of the garden where the cherubim guarded the garden. Um, from God's presence in the tree of life. And so the fact that the veil is ripped is very significant. And the fact that Jesus says today to the, to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise, is another evocative word of the garden. So it gives us, it's interpreting what happened at the death of Jesus. He did, it's not just a man that's dying on a cross, a Roman cross. Yeah, there's lots of those in the text. So we looked at those, all right? Um. Yeah, so we'll leave that there. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. Okay, so what about his resurrection? What is, it's probably the hardest question of all, okay? What, what is the significance of his resurrection? Luke knows. Okay, yeah, that's the ascension. Yeah, that part, that piece of it, that he's been, we might say, installed as God's king, Right? Okay, if we have if there is no resurrection, there is no hope. Why? Okay. Yes. So, 
Well, she, everything she said there, if you couldn't hear it, I'll summarize with the word vindication. Okay? It shows that God vindicated Jesus. Vindicated him as his son. It, it vindicates the fact that he's, it shows that he's accepted him as a sacrifice. Again, all under this vindication banner. He's accepted the sacrifice. It shows he's installed him as the king. So he's not a crucified criminal. He's the king of Israel, and he's the king of the world. So his resurrection ascension shows that. It shows he's been installed as judge over all the earth. It shows that he has triumphed over every evil power. So we could summarize all of that under the banner of this vindication idea. that God has vindicated Jesus in the resurrection. Okay, That would be like one way we could answer that question, the vindication paradigm. Another way, I'll just go ahead and give it to you. I call it restoration. So vindication, restoration. What do you think I mean by that? Amen. Yeah, the enemy of humanity has been overcome. The curse, the, the judgment of death for humanity has been overcome by one man so far. Jesus. He's overcome it. He's, it shows that God has begun his restoration or his renewal of the creation. And he's begun it by bringing the first man back from the dead. So I think in this case, this restoration idea of the resurrection gets at our future resurrection too. It shows we have hope, kind of what you were saying earlier. We have hope of resurrection because he was brought back from the dead. We have hope that we will come through and be raised from the dead on the final day just like he was raised from the dead. It's our assurance of resurrection. And it just, it, this restoration, this banner, we could, we could see it, you know, it's, it's showing that the new covenant has begun, right? It's showing that the old is, is passing away. It shows that the new creation has, has been inaugurated. It shows that the new, the, the new temple is in process of being built. So we looked at all of that, and we can summarize all of that as restoration, I think. So vindication, restoration. Again, just trying to crystallize some of these concepts for you after I drowned you over the last three weeks um, with biblical texts, all right? So I think that's, that's the point uh, of the resurrection. Now, this is glorious, glorious news. Especially for rebels like us, the human beings who have uh, just totally forsaken our, our purpose, right? To have one who has stood in our place, achieved it for us, borne the wrath and punishment that we deserve, and earned for, and earned for us all of the covenant blessings. And it's, it's glorious only if we respond rightly to that news. Follow me? This kind of news, in other words, it demands a response. These are historic events that have taken place. They've been interpreted to us by God, and they demand a response from human beings. And uh, I just want to take a second, before we get into what the Bible says is the right way we should respond to the news, I want us just to think through together uh, some, these are just more descriptive, but just ways that, wrong ways that human beings, image bearers, respond wrongly to the news of the gospel. What are some of those? Again, this is not rocket science, but just helping us spread it out. What's that? They reject it, yeah. So, yeah, maybe if we, if we kind of, if we, Dialing in a bit, we we'll say some form of outright rejection, usually with anger. 
Why is that? Why would someone respond angrily to this, this good news of the gospel? Oh yeah, they're deceived that they think they're, you know, that their entire existence is based on a lie, that they have to repent of their idolatry. They say they're idols of what they built their lives around. It's what we built our lives around before we came to Christ. So when an idol is toppled and there's no repentance, it typically evokes anger. Right? So people kill Jesus. People tried to stone Paul everywhere he went when he was preaching the good news because he confronted their idolatry. Yeah, so there's some form of outright rejection, usually with anger. Sometimes it's not so explosive, though. What, what, what other forms can rejection take? Yeah, that's excellent. We'll get into that in just a, in just a second. That's helpful. Um, yeah, deceived into thinking they they believe the truth, especially as it kind of takes the label of Christianity in some way. We'll look at that. Yeah, sometimes I think there's just like skepticism or mockery, kind of. They're not angry necessarily, but they're just kind of like, you believe that? You know, it's it's there's this. At least that's what I've experienced. Like a skepticism. They're not. Like, it's moral relativism saying, like, well, it's fine if you want to believe that, but that's kind of crazy. You're saying a guy came back from the dead, and you're going to come back from the dead, too, and um, it's just kind of dismissed, right? Uh, so skepticism, mockery, would be another rejection of, of the gospel. Um, I think a lot of, um, sometimes what I see is, uh, like, a bored indifference to it, you know, kind of like, yeah, heard that before. You know, yeah, my parents believe that. Yeah, kind of brought up in that. It's like, whatever. It's sort of indifferent or like a non-committal. And that's still rejection. Like, that's still a, a rejection. Like, there's no neutrality when it comes to the message of the gospel. We're going to see that in a minute. That's still rejection. This sort of bored, yawning indifference, this pursuit of other, because there's essentially, they're indifferent toward that, but they're not indifferent toward everything. They're not indifferent toward their idolatry. They love their idolatry. They worship their idolatry. They they buy things for their idolatry. They think about and obsess about their idolatry. They talk about their idolatry. So this bored indifference toward the truth is really just radical unbelief. All right. Another, Another one, another bad response is what I might call a hypocritical faith. And the faith is in quotes because it's not it's not faith but I'm calling it faith, just for the sake of hypocritical faith. And this kind of faith claims to believe in Jesus, but uh, no real change is made toward self or sin. Okay? They are still Lord of their lives. They still love sin. And so they might kind of make a profession, they might claim to believe in Jesus, but no change is made in terms of how they view themselves 
for their sin. And so, and, and what I find is, and I used to be in this category, surprisingly, these, these, these people are often incredibly confident that they're saved. Like, incredibly confident. And the Bible just condemns them, you know, like in, in just a one swoop. And their lives bear zero fruit, uh, biblical fruit, and there's just this incredible confidence. Some are even really religious, and they can kind of, they go to church, they talk in these sort of Christian platitudes, but they have no transformation happening internally in their lives. And so that's very scary. And I think kind of similar to what Luke was saying earlier, just a, a, a form of Christianity with no power because they, are, they haven't really yielded to Christ. Where they, they don't really have true faith, and we'll see that in a minute. And then there's, there's one that this could go either way, but one I would call a, an anxious analysis. And this is another wrong response to the gospel. What I would call an anxious analysis. And this is probably going to hit home for most of us in here. It's always asking if they have enough faith. Always asking Jesus into their heart, based on if you came from a certain tradition like I did. You laid in your bed every night and asked Jesus into your heart over and over and over again because you were so afraid that it might not have stuck the first time, might not have meant it the first time. Uh, this person always doubts their salvation if they see sin in their lives in any level. They feel sort of despair, like they can never really know that they are saved. They feel like it's presumption to say that they know that they're saved. They may be constantly looking for fruit and just constantly discouraged, constantly anxious. This just anxiety is driving this response to the gospel. I call it an anxious sort of analysis. Now I said it could go either way because this kind of person can can have can have faith and just be struggling, or it can reveal that they don't really understand the gospel yet. So what does the Bible say? How should we respond to the gospel? Take a stab at it. Boom, repent and believe. And in that order, okay? So if you want to open to Acts 2. Acts chapter 2. We'll look quickly at this passage and just draw out some implications from this. I think it will be extremely encouraging um, for us. learn a lot here uh, about what the response is supposed to be. And, and I think, like a brother said over here, we could summarize it as, as faith and repentance, or repentance and faith. So, in this passage, Peter has just explained, there's a lot of contextual features here we're not going to get into, but he's just preached the first sermon, the first gospel pr- presentation, if you will, um, to a bunch of Jews who crucified Jesus. So he implicates them, shows that how Jesus is the Messiah, via Scripture, implicates them, says, you crucified him, and, uh, and now let, let all the house of Israel, verse 36, know that for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So notice what it says in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? i.e., how should we respond? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were all selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, so few observations about how, how we should respond to the gospel here. Just straight, straight from the text. Not, not hard. Okay? A response is commanded. A response is commanded. Maybe we can say it like this. There's not an invitation given. A command is issued. And the command, the two imperatives in this text are repent and be baptized. So wait a minute. They said it was repent and believe. So in this text, repent and be baptized. But the point, we'll talk about that in a second. The point is it is, a, it is an imperative command. It's not an invitation. Why do you think that's significant? It holds us accountable. Yeah. That's right. You don't have an obligation to be obedient to an invitation. But here it is. You can accept or reject it. So, um, how you doing, man? Uh, so, yeah, you don't have, a, you don't have to, uh, yes, be obedient to an invitation, but you do to a command. And it's, the command is issued by the king of the universe, right? The creator, Lord, Messiah. So he has the right to issue the command to his people, to humanity. And I think that's got to carry over into our own minds, is that this is not sort of an optional thing in our moral relativistic culture, but it is a, it is, it is a, is a command to be issued forth in our interactions with people, in our own minds as we're thinking about it. I'm obligated to respond. And there will be wrath if I respond wrongly. So you think Psalm 2. It says, Blessed are all who take refuge in the Son, this Messianic Son, and that they should respond now in joyful fear and faith to Him because His wrath is quickly kindled. Meaning, he, if, he's, if He's accomplished this great salvation and you reject it and neglect it for your own soul, you will have to bear that for all of eternity. So it's not an invitation. It is an imperative. It's a command. A response is commanded. And you see that here in uh, Acts 2.38. And the commanded response is repentance and faith. All right, the commanded response is repentance and faith. That's number two, the next observation. Now, you might say, wait a minute, he says to repent and be baptized here, not repent and believe. What do we do with that? Well, repentance and faith are really two sides of the same coin in the Bible. So sometimes they appear together as two commands. 
Sometimes one stands for the other, like the other is implied by the one. Okay? And I think that's what's happening here. Repentance is, is implied here. Or, I'm sorry, faith is implied in the command to repent. So, repentance is when someone does kind of an about face, a 180, and faith is a simple reception of the promise with open hands. So, walking this way in rebellion, confronted, you turn, that's repentance, and then faith embraces this other side. So it's, it's really two sides of the same coin. And the reason I say that here is notice how these repenters, they're not described as repenters later in the same story. They're described as um, those who received the word, verse 41. Those who received his word. It doesn't say those who repented, so they were commanded to repent. But look, those who received his word. This reception language is the language of faith. So you would expect it to say those who repented were baptized, right? Because the command was to repent and be baptized. But he says those who received his word were baptized. So you look down, the same thing is in verse 44. Again, and all who believed were together. So that's how they're the same group is described. They're not described as the repenters. They're described as those who believed. Those who believed. So repentance and faith, two sides of the same coin. Um, again, if you want to see both of these in the same context, you can write down Mark 1.15, where Jesus issues forth this command to repent and believe in the gospel. That's what he says there. Now let's take a deeper look real quick at repentance and faith. All right, so those are just really two observations we can make. We're going to keep making some observations as we go in this passage, but let's look kind of at repentance. What is that? How would you identify, how would you describe what repentance is? A change of mind? Yep. It's kind of getting at the, the word itself, metanoia. It's like a, meta is a, is a, is a change, that kind of implies that changing. And then mind is noia. That's the idea, kind of the, the, if it's a compound, you want to think about it that way, like a change of mind. Yep. Okay. Yeah. That's involved in repentance, is taking ownership of your sin, not excusing it or blaming it on other people. Mm-hmm. That's involved in repentance, is when you recognize your status in, before a God who is holy, um, that you must, you must turn. Yeah. What's that? Turning from your sin, yep. You're turning away from sin and toward God and His mercy. What's that? Yeah, asking for mercy. Yeah, so I think if we just dial it all in, I think, you know, it's, it's significant that when, let me just map some of this out for you. All right, when, when it's paired with faith in the command, repentance always comes first. Okay, repentance always comes first. And it's not like it's a first act, but I think it's just logical, right? So that implies that we are in rebellion, that we are in on the run, that humanity is on the run from God, and we need to stop and turn back, turn around. It's not a work. It's a, it's a, it's a call to stop and turn and believe, right? So it implies that we're on the run in the wrong direction, and we need to turn around. So here's how I would define it. Repentance is a change of mind, like Joseph said, that leads to 
a change of behavior. It's a change of mind, or a change of heart, we could say. Your innermost person has a, does a 180. And that 180, if you've done the 180 in your heart, that will, over time, lead to a change of behavior. It'll lead to, to transform living. Now, this is, we see this right here in the text. It says, this says that they were cut to the heart in verse 37 when they heard the command. So they could have just as easily responded like the Jewish leaders do in chapter 4. In verse, chapter 4, verse 2, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people. And then later on, like highly incensed. That's how the religious, these other group of Jews responded. But these, this group says they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. That's the language of deep conviction over sin. There's probably some new covenant undertones here as well, this like heart circumcision that's happening in this moment, but for another time. All right? This language of deep conviction over sin, they recognized they were in the wrong They recognized they were deserving of God's judgment and they were headed that way because of their crucifixion of Jesus. It's the context. So this cut to the heart is the language of deep conviction over sin. So Peter tells them to repent, to turn away from their rebellion and their animosity toward Jesus, to turn to Him, to identify with Him in baptism, receiving His forgiveness. So baptism is not a work. It's, a, it's, an, it's an identification with the Messiah. It's saying, okay, I killed him, which says that's how I really thought about him, and now I'm going to turn away from that and I'm going to identify with him now in faith. And that's going to be shown in baptism. Baptism is not a work. It doesn't save you. And so he also commands them to, to like I said, to publicly identify with the risen Lord in baptism. And then notice that these initial converts had an interchange and a disposition change, and they, they were cut to the heart. The sin they once loved, we could say it like this, the sin they once celebrated, they now realized had put them in the crosshairs of God's wrath. They, they realized that God had killed, or that, that they had killed God's Messiah, and they couldn't atone for themselves. So they stopped going in their rebellious direction. They turned back toward Christ. They ran nakedly toward Him in hopes of mercy, and they found it full and free. And this repentance, this change of, of mind and heart is played out in a change of behavior for these folks. And that's described in Acts 2, 42-47. So, it, I mean, you could just read that. We did read it. But they're devoted to the truth now, and before they weren't. Um, they are devoted to each other now. Um, there's lots of things here. They, they're generous with their possessions. They have joy. Uh, they attend the, the temple together. Um, they praise God. So there's a, there's a change that's happened. And in particular, what Luke's trying to draw out, if we could exposit this text, is that, again, there's new covenant undertones here that Israel, this, this, group, this, this group of Israelites, are receiving the new covenant. They're being made obedient from the heart. Um, just like Jeremiah 31 and other, other things said that would happen. Now, this is not a perfect obedience. You're going to see this uh, throughout Acts. The church is not perfect. The church is working out a bunch of issues. But their, the fundamental disposition has changed. It's not, Pastor Brian says this all the time, it's very helpful. It's not perfection, it's direction. I think it's very applicable to repentance. 
direction. You know, woo, uh, my direction has changed. But am I there? No. But dispositionally, I've turned. Christ is no longer my enemy. I care about him now. It's a change in your fundamental loyalties. You've repudiated yourself and your sin, and you've, you've yoked yourself to Christ for all He's done for you. And so are you sensitive towards sin and grieved by it, or do you not really care? Like we said, do you explain it away? Do you blame it on others? Or, or are you broken by it? Are you cut to the heart? Do you own it? Do you love your sin, secretly resent Christ for telling you to forsake it? Or do you hate your sin? You hate that you keep getting tripped up in it and you cherish Christ. So, that would be on the front end, the kind of this, the one side of the coin, which is repentance. Flip it over, there's faith. And we'll be brief here. So, how would you describe faith? What is faith? Conviction of things not seen. Yes, yeah, like surround sound. I like this. This is good. Yeah, that's a great text. A great text on faith. Hebrews, what is it? 11.1. Okay, great. Hebrews 11.1. Yep, turning towards him as a solution. To, so, so yeah, if you turn away from your, your sin and repentance, repentance also has the turning toward idea. I would say faith is the receiving Faith is the receiving, right? It takes God at His word. It looks like believing His promises. It looks like obeying His commands, trembling at His warnings. But faith is the laying hold of what God has said. And it's not a work because your hands are empty. You have nothing in your hands to bring. All you have but you have hands to receive. And faith always has an object, okay? It always has an object. So get rid of that cultural idea that's insanity. It's just like, just believe. Like, that drives me nuts. It's like, no, it needs an object. Like, you can't just tell me to believe in the culture. Like, okay, believe, just believe. It's like, no, it needs an object. Faith needs an object, and the object is, is Christ. So you can write down Romans 4, Because Romans 4 really fleshes out, you know, Pastor Brian's going to be there soon at some point. I guess it's Romans 4. <laughs> Might be like a year from now. Um, so we'll go there. All right, Romans 4. We could say it like this. Faith looks away from ourselves and exclusively to Christ. Okay? Away from yourself and exclusively to Christ. And that's the idea of Romans 4, where he says what? He's talking about Abraham. Verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, that's faith, believes in him 
who justifies the ungodly, justifies him freely on Christ, for Christ's sake, the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And again, David attested to this. He's going to go on to say that. It's for Jews and Gentiles together. So faith, what does faith do? Faith repudiates ourselves. It doesn't bring any dirty works. It says, here you go, accept me. It rejects anything good we may have, and it depends exclusively on the righteousness of Christ. And then, I think again, as this passage goes on, we're going to see that faith believes that God will do what He promised. God will do what He promised. Faith believes that God will do what He promised. Look down in verse 20. No, this is again talking about this radical circumstance that Abraham found himself in where he was promised to have a son. They were both old. Sarah was barren. So he says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And here it is, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And that's the, de- that's, that's the description of faith. So when God promises to forgive you fully and freely in Christ, you yield to him. You receive it with empty hands, not trying to bring any of your own works to the table. Even if your heart condemns you, right? And your heart's saying, I don't deserve this. Your heart's right. You don't deserve it. And you never will. So get rid of all of those works. Come with empty hands to the Lord. And that's, where, that's what he goes on to say. He says, but the words in verse 23, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, that's Abraham's, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So that's what we believe. So we sink our faith teeth into. So we lay hold of. All right. So let me just give you a few more things, real quick. Illustration of a rope swing. How many of you have ever done a rope swing into a, into a lake or river? Yeah, you crazies out there. Okay. Picture yourself swinging out into eternity on the rope of Christ. That's faith. Faith is laying hold of the rope and jumping depending on the rope to hold you. Putting all your hopes on the thread, right? The scarlet thread, which is is Christ's righteousness, His promises. You're staking everything on Him. It's like Jesus or bust. And this protects us, this understanding of faith protects us from at least two pitfalls when it comes to faith. So the pitfall over here is faith as an intellectual assent only. So, faith is just sort of like assenting to facts about Jesus. Yeah, I believe those things are true, right? Demons believe that they're true. But they're not appropriating that in mercy, right? They know there's a God, they just hate Him. So, faith is not just intellectual assent, and it, so it protects us from that side, but it also protects us from faith as a work. Meaning, these questions, when do I have enough faith? the one who's constantly analyzing to see if their faith makes them worthy of salvation. Their eyes are in the wrong place. They're looking toward themselves instead of to Christ. So so the call is to look away from you and live. See Him. 
Load your mind up with what He's done for you as a sinner and latch on to that. Bury your anxieties in Him. And often this ask Jesus into your heart tradition also becomes a work. Repeating this endlessly to make sure that it's stuck only confirms that that's how we're thinking about it, is it's a work. It's something I do to be made right with God. But Christ has done the thing you need to be made right with God. And it's yielding to that, embracing that. So we need to rest our anxious hearts fully in the completed work of another, of Him. And that's faith. And that's glorious. It's nothing you do. You simply receive the gift. And if you receive a gift, your life will change. Over time, not perfect, but it will, it will begin to change. Because repentance always bears fruit. There's fruit in keeping with repentance. But we don't want to analyze that either. You know, like overly analyze the fruit. The call is to turn from yourself and to embrace the free gift of what Christ has done. So I want you to be thinking between now and next week. Uh, I'm going to try to use next week as our last one. as sort of a grab bag. Okay? Kind of a catch-all. If there's things that are unclear, uh, we might even talk about evangelism a bit. Uh, simplifying this all down, crystallizing it for everybody. So I want you to be thinking about any questions you have from what we've, what we've covered. And if you could email those to me this week, that would be helpful. So then I can kind of get a gauge for where you're at, what you're thinking through, what questions you might have kind of coming out of this. Um, if you don't email me, beware. I might lay more on you, okay? Um, but I, ideas I have are just like thinking about evangelism, thinking about how we live by the gospel, um, kind of mapping that out into our our daily experience. So, let's pray. Father, we're we're thankful for this stunning, stunning gift and for this clarity um, that your word gives to us in terms of how we should respond to you. We're thankful that you've done it all for us. Our hearts are rejoicing now um, in the free gift, and I pray that if anybody doesn't have clarity here, um, that you would help them find that today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.